and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and this is number 119 and we're already into February and still no events to go to. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter and it's been another pretty quiet week here other than helping with teaching and not going anywhere. I've been steadily going through some walking DVDs and I'm not really sure if they're making me feel better or worse. I did read something this week about pilots being rusty after not flying so long, so hopefully they get some practice in before we all start travelling again. Or maybe that should be if we start travelling again. I did manage to get one walk in and was very happy to see that there are snowdrops out, so a clear sign of spring coming. The snowdrops are about six weeks behind all the Valentine's products in the stores, and there have been Easter eggs in the stores here for about a month. No pumpkins yet though. I should tell you who our guests are. This week we have three interviews. We feature conversations with Jamie Crummy, co-founder of Too Good To Go, Mark Tolman, Group Strategic Sales Director at FERC Group, and Miguel Freitas, Nutrition Scientist at Danone. And that's rather a long interview because we cover so many different subjects, but a very interesting one, so please do stay tuned. And of course we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at Stone X. Before we get to the news that you may have missed, whether accidentally or deliberately, the news here seems to have been dominated by new strains of coronavirus and whether vaccinations are being done quickly enough. Apparently there is now also a market for fake negative test documents. It seems they are to sell to travellers. Speaking of negative tests, I was very brave last week and sent in a sample for bowel cancer screening. Here in Scotland, over a certain age, they send you a test kit every two years and you take a tiny sample of your poop. Apologies if you're listening at breakfast. And then you send it off. I did think about cheating and sending some from one of the cats, but then I figured my test result might come back and say, you don't have bowel cancer, but you do have feline ringworm. Anyway, on that note, let's have some real news. I'm pleased to say there has been plenty of it this week, so here we go. IFF completed its merger with DuPont's nutrition and biosciences business. SIG partnered with Framptons to install the first Combidome carton bottle filler in the UK. The Laughing Cow has launched some new snacks in the US and also in the US Milk Specialties Global has doubled its lactose production in California. Griner Packaging has introduced a new cardboard spoon to the market and in the US a Chekhov scientist helped Pizza Hut launch its new Detroit style pizzas which are rectangular and have more cheese on them. In New Zealand, Greenpeace said the government's climate change discussion document is a free pass for dairy. Also in New Zealand, Fonterra has turned to DSM to lower its carbon footprint. Cargill has added tapioca to its range of starches and Very has entered the dairy alternatives market with the acquisition of the cultured nut. German cooperative DMK announced a host of ice cream brand launches and SIG has announced a new program for startups. IMCD opened a new UHT pilot facility in Indonesia and VTT is working with Arla on cellulose-based food packaging. You can read all of these, although obviously you don't have to read them all at once, at dairyreporter.com. First this week we are talking to the Danish headquartered packaging company Ferk, which is introducing its new Eco Hot Pro product family. And that's a new circular mono PET pot range for hot fill food applications developed to allow high temperature sterilization. To give us the details on the new range is Mark Tolman, Group Strategic Sales Director at Ferk Group. All right, well, I guess if we could start with a bit of background on the company and your products, that would be great. Fairco are a leading manufacturer of recycled packaging solutions for the food market. We specialize in the use of RPET, CPET, and we put those into our products for ready meals, fresh meats, food to go, and obviously the dairy market. Using these materials, we can put on average around 80% recycled content into our products. The thing that makes Fairco unique is that we're the only integrated tray recycler, and that means we own our own recycling plants, and that's based in Holland with 4PET. And that means, okay, that we can not only produce the trays, but we can also recycle them as well and that's a first going back into food packaging we have a turnover around 550 million euros and we employ 2200 staff and we manufacture in uh, 16 production sites around europe 
And our main goal is to have true circularity, meaning that we put our products back into food packaging again and again. You mentioned about recycling products that you produce yourselves. How do you actually get the product back in order to be able to recycle it? The answer is, okay, it depends by country. So obviously in the UK, we have a co-mingling situation with regards to recycling, and that is more challenging. But if you go to other countries where we have obviously split recycling streams, it's much easier. So in answer to your question, okay, yes, we have a good feedstock at the moment, but it does depend by country as to uh, the availability of that feedstock. Could you tell me what this new product range is and how it applies to dairy? Yeah, of course. So, uh, I mean, really to perhaps go back and give a little bit of history. So we started the journey around three years ago to bring sustainable materials into the dairy market. We really wanted to bring a high level of recycled content and the ability to have true circularity into our packaging solutions. And therefore, okay, we look to bring our pets or PET or CPET into the dairy market. We have successfully uh, produced now a what we would class as being a primary range or a starting range, which is a 500 gram, 400 gram and 350 gram pots for the dairy market. And the key driver of bringing those products is that they're able to deal with the hydrogen peroxide uh, sterilization process, which up until now has not been possible using standard RPET. So we're obviously delighted to have this innovation first and bring this to uh, not only the UK market, but also the European market as well. And so that's really what they were brought in to address that high temperature issue? Indeed. So a lot of the machinery involved in the packing of uh, dairy products uses hydrogen peroxide. The machinery is relatively old in certain cases. And therefore, okay, you have to have a temperature range that can go up to uh, boiling points. And standard PET is unable to do that. So by using a crystalline material, we're able to then get up to 120 degrees. And that's the clever bit with regards to the new innovation and the design. So that means now we can put our current products onto customers' production lines and without any capital changes they can run our products, which is obviously great news for both us, but also for consumers with regards to recycled content. Obviously, if you're allowed to tell me, what is the company's technology and how does it work? Yeah, there's two elements to this. So there is obviously the CPET element, i.e. the crystalline part, and we have a great track record in delivering that in ready meals. So we're the market leader around Europe in terms of sales of uh, ready meal trays. So we've had a, a strong history in being able to make the CPET itself, but the challenge is being able to make those into pots. And we've done a lot of work and a lot of investment to enable that technology to convert and produce pots. So yeah, the technical piece has been how do we uh, how do we get the conversion right? And uh, we're delighted that through a number number of technical challenges and changes we've been able to achieve that and that's the big difference. And so what are the benefits if you're a company that would be using these products what are the benefits of the new products over the existing ones on the market? The major benefit is the fact that most of the market at the moment today is using either polystyrene or polypropylene. Historically and today, they are being used in virgin grades, meaning they have no recycled content. The big gain here is that we can now put up to 75% recycled content into our pots. And that's the real uh, benefit both for our customers and also the end consumer as well. And that's also driven by taxation, both in the UK and Europe, which is obviously coming on stream in April 2022. So our customers can obviously benefit from these pots being exempt of that tax. And is this something that obviously you mentioned the tax and consumers are starting to demand this more and more so that makes it cost effective for the companies that will be using these products? Yeah, it does. I mean, there is a premium still to pay because uh, clearly the tax whilst it's coming in at A level, we expect it to be an escalating tax and depending upon which country you go into around Europe, so the tax levels are slightly different. But so from our point of view, you know, we think, okay, that by having a market leading 75% recycled content and obviously trying to make sure that we are commercially viable, we believe, okay, that the market is there for us to sell our products. And we've had a very high demand so far, okay, from the small amount of marketing that we've done. How do these, as well as your other products, address that circularity that we seem to be desperately trying to get towards? I think in, in, in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, with our PET and CPET, they are both able to be recycled. So in their mono streams, which is what we're talking about here, we are able through both our four PET facility, but also other recyclers to recycle pots or trays back into our packaging. So there is in, certainly uh, within FEC, we're able to demonstrate a truly circular position. Um, and that's clearly what we're wanting the market to move to. So, you know, we're delighted that, first of all, not only with this particular product where we've got 75 
5% recycled, but also, okay, in terms of recycled products um, into, for example, key brands like Yo Valley, where we are producing up to 100% recycled pots. We believe that that's the future. And that means then we're into a true circularity of having no virgin materials being used in or very limited virgin materials being used in our pot production. And as far as the companies that you work with and maybe even ones that you don't work with and and would like to, how do you work with them to provide them with products that they need in this area? Because it's clearly fast changing and you mentioned the additional tax that's coming and the demands from the consumers. It must be quite confusing for manufacturers to know exactly what to do. I completely agree. I think it. I think it's a very challenging time, both in a, but with a positive uh, position in the sense that I think that we all recognise that we need to have recycled content. We can't continue to draw upon virgin materials into packaging, uh, and we need to truly close the loop. So I think the great position is at the moment that we have the ability to do that. The technology is there to do it, um, and obviously our customers and retailers alike are demanding that as our consumers. So I think for us as a business, we are able to offer that now. And we can do that either in a standard range of products, as we just discussed, which we bring into market or through unique designs, okay, for individual brands. But either way, I think the direction is very clear that we have to bring recycled content to the market. And that's uh, something that we're certainly pledging to do. And you already mentioned the legislation and taxation aspects of this, but how much of this is also being driven by consumer demand and how do you then make that connection to the consumer so that they know that the products are more recyclable because it's all well and good, something being a lot better and being more recyclable, but the consumer has to know about it? That's a real difficulty. And and I would say that FAG don't really market themselves towards the end consumer. We're clearly here to supply packaging solutions for brands and retailers alike. But I think that if you look at the solutions that we are supplying in the market today, which are utilizing high levels of recycler, our customers are branding those messages onto the packaging, whether it's uh, through messages on the packaging or whether it's through their websites. But you can see more and more communication coming from that element, which obviously consumers are demanding now going forward. Do you ever envisage that that will become legislation as well, that there'll be a a requirement for more information on packaging and its origins and recyclability? I think on a personal level, I think it's an inevitable course. I think that if you can see the way that the UK market's going with regards to the taxation levels and having certain amounts of recycled content, you could see that the next step would be to have that information posted onto the packaging. So I think as we go forward, more and more information will be requested and probably more more importantly, demanded by the consumer so they understand the origin and the quality of the recycled content, for example, that goes into those packs. Do you find that there's differences between countries in terms of what they need or what their requirements are, and not just from the legal position, but from the different manufacturers? I think it does. And I think so. the answer is yes, there is. I think that in certain parts of Europe, for example, okay, they are behind the curve in terms of perhaps the recycled content and in others, they're far advanced. And the UK, I'm delighted to see, is uh, certainly going to be one of the first to implement the taxation scheme, which is obviously driving retailers and brands alike to take those steps. But I think, you know, it's a slow process. It's a big change. And people want to make sure that their investments that they are making are correct. And clearly, we support, though, anything, okay, that brings recycled content and long-term true circularity into both the dairy market and other markets alike. And the new products that you just came out with, that you can you can supply those globally in different shapes, sizes, colors, all kinds of things? Yep, indeed. So, you know, today we have product, for example, that we're supplying to New Zealand, to Australia, as well as to the UK. So, yes, we're uh, certainly a global supplier in terms of our ability to uh, provide our product. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about the new products? The only thing that I'd like to add is perhaps, okay, that retailers at the moment are fixated on weight because that is what they have pledged to to reduce. And we agree with that. But there is a need for retailers also to recognize that by reducing the amount of recycled content, it's as important. And if you look at the greenhouse or CO2 impacts of using recycled content, it's much lower. And we have to put those two things in balance. So whilst using virgin materials is great for, for, so for example, a virgin polypropylene pot um, would be lighter than a recycled pot. But clearly, we need, we need them to think about that recycle element as well as just the weight, the physical weight of the pot. 
Now we're talking about food waste. Too Good To Go is a UK anti-food waste company, which has partnered with a range of food companies, including those in dairy, to tackle date label confusion and help eliminate food waste. The Look, Smell, Taste, Don't Waste campaign already has 25 brands signed up. And to tell us more about Too Good To Go and this worthwhile project is Jamie Crummy, co-founder of Too Good To Go. The first obvious question is if you could give me a bit of background on Too Good To Go, what the business is, what it does, all those good things. Of course, yeah, it'd be my pleasure. So Too Good To Go is a social impact company. That's all about fighting food waste. Our mission itself is all about dreaming of a planet with no food waste. So with this, you know, these, these big ambitions, these big goals, the, the primary way in which we fight food waste is through our mobile app. And that's what people tend to know us for. This is a mobile app which connects consumers with businesses who have surplus food for sale. And it's a really fun, simple and engaging way for you know, us as individuals, as consumers you know, to fight food waste together and do our bit, pick up amazing food, but also um, through reducing food waste. As a business we, uh, and an organization, you know, we launched Too Good To Go in the tail end of 2015, uh, scaled it to 15 countries globally, including the US, and have now amassed over 60,000 different food businesses in which we work with and over 30 million users who collectively have rescued 60 million meals from going to waste. And how does it work if you were to download the app? Can you kind of talk me through how it how it works for a consumer and a company? Yeah, of course. I mean, the app itself is incredibly simple to use. So what happens, a user will download the app and they'll then see a whole host of different food businesses. What they'll do is they'll purchase what we refer to as a magic bag. They'll purchase this through the app and then collect it from a food business um, during an allotted collection window. You're probably wondering what a magic bag is. Essentially, well, the very nature of food waste is incredibly unpredictable. So when a user purchases a magic bag through the Tuga to go platform, they don't actually know precisely what food they're going to collect. It's just an array and assortment of awesome food, which is left over from that specific food business. So the businesses we work with, um, you know, they, they range hugely. So from your sort of local cafe or bakery through to, you know, your high street coffee chain or restaurant, all the way through to supermarkets and retailers, contract caterers, and even sort of the industrials and food producers themselves. So it really is an eclectic mix of different food businesses. As I mentioned earlier, this fun, simple and engaging way for our consumers to fight food waste together. Are people able to stipulate things like, for instance, if you were vegan, you wouldn't really want to get all kinds of meat in your package. Can you stipulate yeah. things like that? Yeah, that, no, that, that's a really good question. And, you know, as you sort of imagine, typically with a lot of people who care about environmentalism and food waste, there are a lot of um, people with specific dietary requirements. That said as well, we're a platform that spans 15 global markets in which there are various different um, dietary requirements and, and, thing, and things like that. So the app itself does allow consumers to filter for restaurants, which can be specific to their dietary requirements. That being said, with the premise of the magic bag, and it's all about reducing food waste, there isn't always a guarantee that um, individuals can guarantee specifically what they're going to get. But that's where the joy of the platform itself is where you go and collect it from a food business. You're able to articulate any of your dietary requirements there at the point of collection. Before talking about this amazing new campaign that's going on, I wonder if you could fill me in as to what some of the big issues are currently with food waste. Food waste is a huge, huge issue, which you know, many of the listeners may not know. But, you know, a third of all food produced ends up being wasted. You know, I often refer to the implications of food waste in, in a sort of threefold. So there's the financial implication, the social and the environmental. With food waste itself, you know, it's costing the global purse around about $1.2 trillion dollars every single year. 
So that there equates to about the same value as the world's 15th largest global economy, Mexico. So you know, we're spending a hell of a lot of money. So more than the entirety of Mexico's GDP is spent on throwing food away. Now, specifically for businesses themselves, in the hospitality sector, food waste can be costing businesses around about 97p, so around about a euro per plate of food thrown away. And then there's the social implications as well. So there's about 888 million people go to bed hungry every single year, yet there's more than enough food being produced to feed everyone. So in that light, you know, we're looking at food waste as being, you know, the true injustice. And then from an environmental lens, and this is where we at Two Get to Go focus a lot on, around 10%, so it's 8 to 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from food waste. That's not food production, that's food that's wasted. And that means that if food waste was a country, you know, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter after the US and China. You know, in fact, food waste accounts for more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire aviation industry. So it really is a huge lever in terms of relieving the effects of climate change. The current you know, science states that reducing food waste is the number one most impactful action that we as individuals can take to reverse the effects of climate change. So you know, food waste itself, in summary, you know, it is a huge, huge issue. And it's particularly pertinent looking at it through the lens of climate change. Um, and this is you know, why it's so important for businesses and individuals alike to find ways in which they can start fighting food waste. And one of the things with respect to food waste is obviously best before dates and use by dates. And what kind of confusion is there over that? And how does that affect the picture that you just painted? Yeah, and again, I'm I'm very glad you asked me about that because you know, date labels themselves are just inherently confusing. You know, if I'm looking at a retailer in the UK, for example, you know, I'd see a, a whole host of different labels from use by to best before to display until to sell by. You know, and there's a whole host of other sort of terminologies which are used on food packaging these days. So it's unsurprising that we as individuals are confused around what date labels mean. Specifically, when we're looking at date labels from a European perspective, there's only two labels which we actually need. So that's a use by and a best before. The other sort of versions are just internal things used by uh, retailers for um, more often than not for stock rotation purposes. When we're talking about best before and use by, what I want to get across here are the facts. And use by is a safety guidance metric. So what that means is if you see a use by, you should really stick to it because if food goes beyond its use by, it becomes unsafe. So there are like health implications if you start consuming food beyond its use by date. Best before, on the other hand, is just a quality guidance metric. So what this means is, is that food, once it's gone beyond its best before day, is still perfectly safe to eat. It just might not be at its most optimal quality. So an example here might be your cornflakes, for example. You know, they might have gone past their best before date, so they're still perfectly safe to eat. They just might not be you know, as crunchy as they were weeks before. This confusion around date labels essentially leads to a hell of a lot of food being thrown away. So, you know, 45% of adults in the UK are confused about what best before labels actually mean. And what this results in in the UK is 180,000 tonnes of food being needlessly thrown away every single year. And this is food which is still perfectly edible. So the issue of date labels, as I, as I say, is there's so much confusion surrounding it, which results in all of this food being thrown away, which is still perfectly edible. And as a result, it is having really awful effects with respect to climate change. We see some companies have already started taking their own, doing their own thing when it comes to food waste. And we see different campaigns. And um, I know that one of the Scandinavian dairy companies changed the wording on its packaging to try and reduce food waste. Do you think that having different 
ways of tackling food waste is a good thing, or do you think that it needs to be more unified? I, I would agree with the first part of your question there, which is it's all about collaboration. And it's, it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all in terms of solving food waste. But it's about engaging with different stakeholders and those involved across the supply chain and within the sort of the food sector itself is where, is where we can really tackle some of these issues with respect to food waste. So this is where our campaign itself has been launched. And, you know, what I was really happy about coming on this show today was to talk about a campaign that we have just launched in the UK. It's our date label campaign. It's our look, smell, taste, don't waste campaign. What we're doing with this campaign is specifically trying to demystify these myths around best before dates. What we're asking people to do is to use their senses to look, smell and taste food once it's gone beyond its best before date so that they themselves can be empowered and use their own senses, use their own common sense to evaluate whether a product is still okay for them to eat. As you mentioned, you know, there's a whole host of other brands which have joined us on on this campaign itself. And what they're doing is they're printing this message on their food packaging to amplify this message so that we can change these attitudes and change these behaviors. At the same time, you know, there are brands which are doing lots of different things. So my sort of view on that is fantastic. You know, the more companies, you know, encouraging consumers to eat food rather than throw it away, the more that we can reduce the amount of food that is wasted globally. What research has been done or have you been a part of that would suggest what messaging makes the most impact with consumers? Because obviously, go back 30 years and we didn't have best before and sell by and use by. And obviously, that was a good idea at the time. But what seems to work best? So from our perspectives and our learning, this is very specific to our date label campaign, the look, smell, taste, don't waste campaign. We found that you know, simplicity is you know, key to making an impact. You know, what we're really trying to do is change attitudes and change behaviors. The slogans themselves, which we're using with this campaign, you know, they're used so prominently across society. So what we're looking with these, with these phrases is just to have some resonance with people so that we can kickstart a change in behavior. So it can be you know, this behavioral nudge to encourage people to use their senses and use their, um, use their common sense on an area which is so confusing for many. We've actually tested the phrase itself, look, smell, taste, don't waste, in uh, surveys that we run prior to launching the campaign. And the, the feedback itself was you know, overwhelmingly positive. You know, what we found was that 94% of the British public you know, really understood what its meaning was and what the intention of the look, smell, taste, don't waste messaging is. And in terms of delivering that message, obviously unpack is one thing, but do you also need to hit them through social media and other ways of getting that message across? Precisely. You know, as, as I sort of mentioned, it's not a one size fits all. The benefit of having the messaging unpack as it acts as that behavioral nudge. So, you know, the moment that somebody feels that, uh, you know, they could be throwing food away, uh, they see the iconography and the messaging on pack itself, which prompts that intervention. But at the same time, we've got to challenge that rhetoric and make it, make it as commonplace as possible by hammering home the message that we should look, smell and taste food once it's gone beyond its best before date, which is where you know, the work on social media channels and other sort of comms channels helps to hammer that message home. And there are quite a few companies involved that are related to the dairy industry. How did you get them involved? And are you still actively looking and recruiting other companies? I mean, I'm not going to say it was a two-minute job. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of work behind the scenes, which has gone beyond engaging lots of brands. So some of the dairy brands which we're working with on, on this campaign are the likes of Danon. Uh, we've got uh, Seventia on board who have brands like uh, San Orgur. We've got Bell Group with um, their Laughing Cow Cheese, as well as organizations like Emmy Group with their Onken Yogurts and Bee Leaf products. 
So there is a big push on dairy brands. And one of the reasons around that is so many people feel that dairy products should be a use-by. But actually, dairy products themselves are best before, and they are one of the most wasted products within our households. So they become a very key food group to engage on the matter itself and, and get people changing their attitudes and changing their behaviors when it comes to food waste. But at the same time, you know, we're not just stopping at dairy brands. We want to engage as many different food brands across the food sector. So this isn't a, a campaign which will stop now. We'll be working with the brands we have already. So there's around about 30 different brands who are part of the campaign launch. And we'll be looking to engage more and more brands as the months go on. And how are you going to determine the success of this and how long is it? Is it an indefinite campaign? Yeah, the campaign itself, it's not going to be a short-lived campaign. Uh, we want this to be here to stand the test of time. What we're doing is, is engaging brands now for the launch, and we'll be, we'll be working with them throughout 2021 and beyond. So it's a campaign which we see being around for the long haul. The task at hand is so mammoth, trying to change the way in which individuals engage with best before dates. In terms of measuring the, the success of the campaign itself, We'll be looking at, you know, the number of brands that we've engaged, uh, the people that we've reached. And then ultimately, we'll be looking to doing uh, some additional surveys and research to see how the messaging on PAC has actually changed people's behaviors. And so where can people learn more about this? Yeah, if people would like to learn more about Too Good To Go, please head to the Too Good To Go website, www.toogoodtogo.com, or head to our social channels. And if you'd like to learn more about the campaign, see the brands which are involved and how you as an individual can do your bit around food waste and date labels, head to the campaign website, which is www.looksmelltaste.co.uk. Of course, COVID-19 is dominating our lives and has for around a year now. We're learning more about the disease all the time and it would seem that gut health may certainly be a relevant factor. To tell us more about recent studies on gut health, probiotics and COVID-19 is Miguel Freitas, nutrition scientist at Danone. I wonder if you could first tell me what kind of studies there have been related to COVID-19 in this area? Sure. You know, since COVID started, I actually took a double role in my company and um, we're, you know, doing, of course, as many companies, uh, testing of workers and so forth with COVID. So uh, the moment COVID started, uh, some investigators started to, to wonder if there's a relationship be between uh, microbes and COVID. And more and more researchers are turning their attention to the role of probiotics in helping support some aspect of the immune system uh, or immune health. And of course, there's a connection with COVID. And last week, they're starting to come more and more. But last week, there was a study coming out from China published on gut, which is one of the most important magazines uh, in terms of aspects related to the microbiome. And they suggested that the imbalance, there's an imbalance of the gut microbiome uh, may increase the chance of developing more severe COVID-19 symptoms and actually maintain, have that, what they're starting to call that long COVID symptoms. So for example, what they found, and I think this is super interesting though, they found that patients with COVID-19, so the ones with severe symptoms, had less bacteria that were beneficial bacteria in their guts. So they found three bacteria in their gut that uh, were not present in high levels in patients with COVID-19. And those were uh, one which is very popular and known for beneficial effects, which is the uh, fecal bacterium uh, protein. The other one is uh, Eubacterium retal. And to my business, the most important is Bifidobacterium. So patients that had severe COVID-19 symptoms did not have Bifidobacterium in their gut. I mean, I'm sure you know Bifidobacterium is one of the most studied probiotic strains, right? So it's very interesting to find that a potential probiotic strain is not present in patients that have severe COVID-19 
symptoms. And they also found that this remains, this effect remained after the virus disappeared uh, in their system. So that's one study that gained some news. And I am particularly involved in, the, in another study, Jim, here in the U.S. I mean, involved in terms of the sponsorship uh, Rutgers University and Dr. Martin Blazer, which is uh, one of the most important uh, uh, leaders in terms of research of the microbiome in the U.S., came to us, asked if we were interested to sponsor the largest uh, prospective study uh, with healthcare workers in the U.S. looking at uh, microbiome and COVID-19. Uh, and we agreed to do that. So the No North America and particularly one of our brands, Activia, uh, is sponsoring this study, which started approximately six months ago, so a little after COVID started. And uh, it's uh, recruiting uh, approximately 850 participants, all healthcare workers, and they're collecting samples pre-COVID, so they already had this cohort of people, and that's why it's so interesting. They had already these people as part of their cohort, so they were already collecting samples of their oral microbiome, so everything which is happening in the mouth and the nose, as well as their fecal microbiome. And they're following these uh, folks for several months, trying to find correlations between their microbiomes and the incidence and severity of COVID-19. So bottom line is, you know, there is more and more research coming out. There's definitely a link, I believe. And I mean, the goal with these studies is to see if eventually any dietary interventions could help. Either it doesn't have to be probiotics, you know, it could be any other thing that could change the microbiome, right? Could be prebiotics, could be other types of fiber. So this study at Rutgers is, is right at the midpoint and um, we don't have results yet, but hopefully uh, in the next few months, uh, they're going to come out with results. I think they have some intermediate data that they're planning to publish soon. But that's what I can tell you, uh, what's going on in terms of the microbiome in COVID. To take it one step before the studies, in terms of your finding that there are different issues with people's microbiome in terms of whether it's like a long COVID or a short COVID, what causes initially those differences to exist? Like why would somebody's gut be good and somebody's not be Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, you know, diet has a, a, a big role there, you know. So what, what people eat definitely uh, shapes their microbiome. It's well known that folks that adopt um, a diet uh, with more plant-based, so more fibers, of course, uh, which are fermented in the gut by particular bacteria, uh, most of them Bifidobacterium, which are known to be friendly and good bacterium. Uh, another aspect that in terms of the diet is fermented foods. If people consume more fermented foods, they're going to have a microbiome which tends to balance more to uh, bacteria that are known to be favorable. And then there's other aspects of lifestyle that have already been um, associated with a better microbiome. I don't want to call it a healthy microbiome, Jim, because there's a lot of conversation what is a healthy microbiome or not, but at least a microbiome that tends to be more diverse and show some type of bacteria that are recognized to be beneficial, such as I have studies looking at exercise, for example, and the difference in the microbiome. Stress, levels of stress also change the microbiome. I'm sure you, you heard everything or at least something about the gut-brain axis. Uh, the microbiome is also a part of, of that aspect of the gut-brain axis. So many factors could make you have one microbiome versus another one. So I guess preventative health is extremely important in this area then? Yeah, I mean, that's where it comes to is, is really, uh, I think that we are in the middle of a, this 
pandemic. And I think that people are starting to understand that food and the choices that they make in terms of food are very important for their health in terms of preventive health. So, you know, typically I hear from my marketing colleagues, you know, taste is the first thing that, that people choose. But I think that more and more we're starting to see people putting that at, at the same level or at least on the back seat and give more preference to if that particular food is going to have an impact in my health or not. I mean, people want to stay well. And of course, gut health is super important. I think people associate gut health with immune health. And then the immune health by itself is very important. And, and that can be independent of gut health. And of course, then the microbiome is, is getting also a lot of noise just because it's associated with so many risk factors of different diseases. So definitely preventive health is very important. And in my business, Jim, as you know, Danone, we are a company that is focused on dairy products, but recently on plant-based products as well. You know, plant-based products does not mean uh, that we cannot provide probiotics. We actually have probiotics in plant-based products. I'm sure you're familiar with Activia. One of our biggest probiotic brands has billions of particular specific bifidobacterium, and which was selected for many different reasons. And we have studies that go back to 20 years already um, looking at Activia and how it helps uh, reduce the discomfort and, and improve gut health. But we also have a plant-based Activia. You know, it's different sources of protein. There's a lot of work that went into that. Uh, in developing that product, in making sure the benefits of this probiotic are the same in the plant-based Activia compared to the regular dairy Activia. You know, we're trying to offer as many options to the public in order for them to be able to take these preventive health approaches. And probiotics is definitely one of them. Do you think that people are more interested and more aware of the connection between all of these different factors like gut health, microbiome, do you think that they're starting to connect all of those dots together? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. You, you've seen uh, right a few weeks after how consumer behavior changed uh, in COVID definitely made immunity and the immune system uh, a huge factor in the choices that people are taking. You've seen an explosion of immune-related products being sold. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't really provide any benefit. But yeah, I think consumers were looking not only for a better diet in general, but also particular foods that they could eat that could have an impact on their immune system. Of course, there's the usual suspects uh, like vitamin C and vitamin D, uh, which we know they have a role in the immune system. And if you look at the market, I mean, that exploded. And of course, they are important. But then probiotics also have a, a huge role in the immune system. And I think we know we have reports from Hartman Group and other, other type of surveys showing that immunity is really a top priority, motivating some of the buyers uh, that search for those type of, uh, of products, uh, functional foods or, um, or supplements. Um, so I, I really think that COVID changed completely the mindset of people. And I think that in the near future and in the long term, I think this will remain in our minds, hopefully. And I think probiotics will be more and more considered, Jim. I, I always tell, tell this story that, you know, I arrived in the U.S. Uh, I did my PhD in France, actually, with Danone. And I arrived in the U.S. in 2004, so a long time ago. I was going to a lot of medical conferences and talking to doctors and experts. And I mean, the knowledge, even within the medical community of good bacteria was very limited. I was going to a gastroenterology conference, the American Gastro Association conference, talking to gastroenterologists and saying, look, this is Activia. We just launched it in 2006 two years after I arrived, it has good bacteria. And some of them would tell me, are you, are you telling me 
that I need to tell my patients to eat bacteria. This was crazy, you know? I mean, at that time, it was very difficult to change this mindset of antibacterial, sterile environment. All we want to do is kill bacteria in your gut and and the Clorox worlds and killing 99.9%. I think that changed a lot, you know? That changed a lot since the known launch activity in the US. Um, there's a lot of efforts that we put towards educating folks uh, about good bacteria. And I think the knowledge and understanding and awareness of probiotics in the US now is completely different from when I arrived here. Clearly there's advertising and social media. We see commercials for Activia quite a lot over here. But what can companies like Danone do to help communicate the messages about probiotics, immunity, gut health. So how do you bridge that gap and improve that even more? We've done a lot of that work. Uh, I think the known, particularly in North America, because it needed to change uh, the perception of people, uh, we needed to be very transparent and properly communicate the benefits of probiotics to the consumer. For example, uh, in packaging. So we, we want to make sure that on the pack, we name the strains of the probiotics. We call out its benefits. We don't want to just to say weed probiotics because a lot of companies, as you probably know out there, you know, they just want to push the word probiotics and they don't necessarily have the right levels of probiotics and probiotics that actually have been studied and will survive until the the shelf the end of the shelf life of the product. So for the known is the transparency. I always tell consumers uh, when I talk with the media that they should take care when buying or you know they should do their own research on that particular product and understand if this if the strain of probiotic is mentioned, if they talk about any studies. Um, so I think those are important things. A lot of other companies are not being as transparent. And, you know, aside from communication and advertisement and packaging, we've been supporting education on probiotics and on, on research around dairy and probiotics for many years. Uh, we have several examples. I think you covered a couple in the past, connecting with the American Gastro Association, providing grants, to educational grants for young scientists to, to do work on probiotics, not necessarily on our probiotics, you know, it's, this is really to expand the field. We launched also a program that it's called um, the No North America Fellowship Grant, which is a grant dedicated to gut microbiome, yogurts, and probiotics. And then we sponsor many conferences. There's one called the Gut Microbiota for Health World Summit, which happens uh, every year, once in the US, once in, in Europe. I mean, we do workshops with dietitians and doctors. Um, I mean, we tried really to, to cover as much as possible all of these stakeholders in order to educate them on, on probiotics. I guess just touching on what you said about shelf life and the efficient nature of the bacteria, it's one thing to put billions and billions of bacteria into a product, but then it has to get to where it needs to go. And it also has to be effective once it gets there. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, in your, in your report on dairy, you know that dairy and milk creates a protective environment for a lot of these bacteria. And that's why they, they live and grow so well in dairy, and because they're, most of them lactic acid bacteria. And when you think about a supplement, right, either a powder or a pill that you see in the health store that has a shelf life of a year, some of them are not refrigerated. I mean, what do you think it's inside there? It's, it's unknown, you know, it's, and there's nobody really regulating all of this, you know, there isn't. So people look at those little flasks and they're, oh my God, 50 billion of probiotics per dose. I'm not sure there's 50 billions of probiotics per dose and what probiotics are even in there? You kind of alluded to it there. What are the best products to add probiotics to? The best matrix are definitely 
dairy is a good matrix. I told you that we already have activity in plant-based, but it is more complicated to make that product because lactic acid bacteria feed out of lactose and some of those sugars, which you don't have in a, in a plant-based matrix. But definitely dairy is, is a good matrix. And when it comes to probiotics, I've studied mainly two throughout all my life. So the first one is Activia, which is uh, with one of our leading probiotic brands around the world and in the US, which is focused on improving gut health and reducing certain um, digestive discomfort issues. And then we have actually the, the product that I did my PhDs in the UK, it's called Actimel, as well as in, in Europe. And here it has a different name. It's called Dynactive, but it's the same product. It's just a different name that resonated better with the American consumer here. That's the strain, which is a lactobacillus casei uh, in Dynactive. That's where I did my PhD. And my whole premise was to understand how Dynactive can help support the immune function. And in order to do that, we, we've launched several clinic studies in different populations, in different age targets, from kids to adults to seniors, looking at how consumption of this probiotic versus a placebo could influence different aspects of the immune system. And there are different immune system markers that we can track and see if, they, if the probiotic has an impact or not. For example, things like oxidative burst capacity of certain immune cells or number of natural killing cells. So those are all immune markers recognized to be important in the, the proper function of the immune system. And that's what the active uh, in particular does. We're starting to see products like cheese be used in order to add probiotics. Are products like cheese and ice cream potential matrices to add probiotics? Yeah, I believe so. I think that uh, the, those are friendly environments to bacteria. Uh, ice cream, it might be a little bit of a, a tricky one, uh, I think it depends at what moment you incorporate the probiotic. It's funny that uh, my college thesis project was probiotic ice cream back many years ago. And we had a hard time because, you know, I don't know if you know how ice cream is done, but it's a slow freezing process. You incorporate the air and uh, the fat and all of that. And we added some yogurt to that with probiotics and we were trying to see if we could incorporate that. But because the freezing process is so slow, some of the bacteria actually do not survive. So their cell wall is destroyed. So we had a really hard time making a probiotic ice cream at that time. But... Um, you know, bacteria survive in cold, as you know, but it has to be a really fast freezing process to maintain integrity of the walls. If it's slow, it breaks. But yeah, to answer your question, I think there's a lot of matrix that are good environments for probiotics. I know you have products for children like the super animals in the US that have probiotics in them. Do probiotics behave differently depending on different ages? I think they, they, they work differently in the body uh, depending on different ages, definitely, just because the bodies are, are also different. So not all probiotics work the same way in everybody, you know, just because of so many things that we already know and so many things that we don't know. And the microbiome is, is probably one of the things that is important when we look at why a certain probiotic has an impact in one person and not on another, maybe it's their microbiome. And today, I don't think we know enough, Jim. What I can tell you that for the past few years, there's probably no probiotic study being done out there that does not consider exploring the microbiome as well. So I think it became a critical aspect of clinical research when it comes to um, probiotics and even prebiotics, you know? And as you mentioned earlier, there were so many other factors. There's diet, whether people are taking medications, so many different things that can affect this. You're right, medication. I forgot to, to, to mention that. Medication is a, it's an important aspect, yeah. 
it's incredible, right? That 20 years ago, you know, we we didn't know anything about the microbiome, and now we're we're starting to find out that it it could be so important in so many things. We're starting to see press releases with new products with probiotics, and clearly immunity and health are becoming big, partly due to the pandemic. But is there a danger, do you think, that there are going to be lots of products flooding onto the market that are perhaps dubious in their quality that are just trying to capitalize on this? Because I'm just thinking in the past, we've seen all kinds of diets, we've seen fat burners, we've seen all kinds of miracle products. Do you think that probiotics could be a buzzword that's taken advantage of in a similar way? And if so, how should it be regulated? And how do legitimate products distance themselves and continue to thrive and grow under those circumstances? Because clearly there's not just Danone, there are many other large dairy companies that are clearly legitimate and have legitimate products when it comes to probiotics. I always say, not all probiotics are created equal. There are many companies out there selling probiotic products, both in foods and in supplements, that are questionable in their quality and in their claims and that are not supported by science or clinical studies. The FDA regulates claims on food and supplements in a very similar way, but most of the products found in the market are advertised to improve a structure or a function of the body. These are considered structure function claims, and the FDA only requires that the company has scientific support for those claims in-house. So given that the FDA does not have to approve any of these claims in advance, it's easy for companies to make those claims without being monitored. So that's not the case for the known North America. We uphold our products to the highest standards. The probiotic products we commercialized, and specifically Activia, have been studied in different clinical trials for over 20 years, and our science is publicly available on many different medical literature websites and databases. So my best advice for consumers is to do uh, their research uh, online using credible sources, uh, but also check on the producer website what are the studies on the specific product and on the specific strains. I would also advise consumers to check the product label the producer lists the full strain name of the probiotic. Now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Butter continued uh, to build on the strength of the recent few weeks, uh, this week again on the futures market. Uh, Skimmel powder, on the other hand, started to uh, fall a little bit again. This is very much in, in, in line with the GDT, which was up overall uh, 1.8%, but butter was up around 6% and skimmel powder was down by about 1.5%. So um, February, March, butter up around 40 euros on the week to around the 35.50 level. Quarter two, butter was up around 20, 25 euros to 36, 40, 45 level. Then quarter three, butter up only slightly, maybe around 10 euros to 36, 80 level. And quarter four then was um, in line with the first two quarters, up around 25 euros to the 37, 20 level. Skimmel powder, as I say, was down a bit. February, March was off around 40 euros to the 33, 65 level. Uh, quarter two was down around 25 euros to the 23.70 level. Quarter three was also off around 25 euros to around 2400 level. And quarter four, same story as well, uh, down around 25 euros to 24.25 level. Quay, quarter one is trading around the same level, around 8.65. Thanks, Liam. We'll chat again next week. Stone X, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another show. Next week I will be trying hard not to mention Valentine's Day, and between now and next Wednesday I really need to do some interviews, and also make time to teach long division and whatever else is on the school assignment list. No wonder time is flying. 
It's even the Super Bowl this weekend, although it's a little bit late in the evening to watch over here in the UK. So do enjoy the game if you're watching it, and until next week, wherever in the world you are, take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.